This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. That is America's greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Final hour. Show's been flying by. Um, looking forward to the inauguration on Friday a little bit. Really mostly just looking forward to it to be over so we can get down to business. want to quote Machiavelli here, and then we'll talk about the Chargers. But Machiavelli and the Prince, he said that if you're going to do bad things, quote, do them all at one stroke so as not to have to repeat them daily. For injuries ought to be done all at one time, so that being tasted less, they offend less. Right? So, if you're going to do a bunch of bad things, do it right now. Do it like the old Band-Aid thing, right? Rip the Band-Aid off one time. I feel like what's going to come up in these next seven days or five days of the Obama presidency, there is going to be a flurry of unconstitutional things or, or of, of pardons of executive orders of whatever and we of course are going to be on the lookout for all those now the good news is any un, any um executive order can be undone with an executive order so it's not that big of a deal but there's going to be a lot of pardons and things like that that we will keep an eye on let you know about now there's a second half to that sentence he says injuries ought to be done all at one time so that being tasted less they offend less comma benefits ought to be given little by little so that the flavor of them may last longer. Now, Obama Obama is probably going to take the first part of Machiavelli's advice here. He's going to do a bunch of bad things all one time, last day. I hope Trump doesn't take Machiavelli's second piece of advice. Don't spread out all the good things you're going to do, President Trump. Do them now. Just <laughs> just get them done right away. I, I don't need a little bit here, a little bit there. Grat, you know, extend it for two years and then in two years be like, oh, keep voting for Republicans and then we'll do more. And then four years, vote for me again. No, do it. Do it all right now. As soon as possible. So I hope that President Trump has his own flurry, but this time of good things, of things that we support, of conservative things, and I hope that flurry never stops. So we'll see. So that's why I'm looking forward to the uh, inauguration, mostly just so that it can be over and we get down to work. So I want to talk about the Chargers here for a second. Um, You may have heard, you may not have heard, because it happened with really little fanfare, but the San Diego Chargers football team moving to Los Angeles. Obviously, this is big news in San Diego, where I live, and it's been a long time coming, many, many years. They've been trying to get a stadium, and the people of San Diego have said, no, we're not going to give you hundreds of millions of dollars so you can build a $1.8 billion stadium, which is like, that's crazy. It's a deal that, it's not a good deal. So they left. Terrible decision. We're not going to get into the, the X's and O's of that, but it's a terrible decision from uh, Dean Spanos, the owner, because 
Chargers are now going to be maybe the 12th most popular sports franchise in LA. No one cares about the Chargers in LA. No one's going to care about the Chargers. They're going to play in the StubHub Center, which is the home of the LA Galaxy Major League Soccer team. It's like a 30, it's like a 27,000 stadium. Like it's like it's for the next couple of years until they can move into the Rams stadium and play second fiddle there and actually pay rent to be like it, it, the whole thing is it's a bad business move even to move to LA, but that doesn't matter. No one cares about that. I talked to a bunch of people in San Diego who don't. So listen, if you do care about football and you live in San Diego and you're a Chargers fan, uh, this happened on Thursday, like devastating. People went to Chargers headquarters and burned their jerseys, like that whole thing. People are crying. So I talked to a bunch of people who don't care about football, who don't care about the Chargers, who don't know what an onside kick is. I talked to someone at work and she called it the barbecue thing before the game. I was like, you mean the tailgate? She's like, yeah, yeah, the tailgate. And so a lot of people, especially in San Diego, like it's not a big football town. And there's a lot of people here who don't care at all. But all of those people who don't care at all said that they do feel bad for the people who work at the Chargers games who now don't have a job. Because you get some people who are like, oh, what a sad day. My team's no longer in San Diego. But then you got a lot of people who are like, oh, this is a very sad day because now I don't have a job to pay the bills for my family. So that's a, a much bigger deal. I say all that because I want to talk about the economic impact of football teams and of giant stadiums. Now, every city's a little bit different, but the economic principles are generally the same. First, anytime you have a tourism board or a chamber of commerce or a sports team touting the economic benefits of it, they are grossly exaggerating it to the point of completely making it up. So there was a citizen's task force uh, in 2003 that said the Chargers bring in $150 million of economic activity, uh, $150 million of annual economic impact. Now, how they do that is they, they consider dozens of different factors, which they hand choose, leave out an infinite number of factors, which they many of them they actively and willfully decide not to include, right? because it may hurt their final numbers. And then within each of those numbers, they make those up too. There's just so much made up information to get to that number. There was two studies done maybe five months ago. One paid for by the Chargers about what the economic impact would be if they built the stadium downtown. Another was done by the hotel owners about what the economic impact would be if they built a stadium downtown San Diego. The numbers were completely different. They asked the same question. They were totally different. How could that be? Well, each study hand chose a certain number of factors. Let's say 10. They were each 10 different factors and they came up with just, they just made up numbers. <laughs> they just make them all up. And then we're supposed to oh no, that's, 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 that's what it is. Absolutely. No. Now there was one factor that, both the Chargers and the hotel owners both had, they both, they both had, right? And it was number of people that will stay in a hotel room per game day or something. And the Chargers made up that 3.2 people will come to San Diego per hotel room. And the hotel owners made up 1.8 people. And they just made them up. And, but that affects the number of dinners that are bought. That affects the number of trolley tickets that are bought. It affects the amount of gas, the amount of food, blah, 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 blah. And they ended up coming to completely different numbers about the economic impact of the Chargers Stadium downtown. So what do we do with that? And gosh, this ties back in. The reason I bring this up, because no one listening cares about the Chargers. Um, 
I bring this up because it's it's the same thing as fake news. I mean, and, and really our bigger principle of maybe it used to be trust but verify. Now it's don't believe anything until you can prove it true yourself. We have to be just super cynical. And I hate to say that, but anytime you see a number, you have to be like, that's not right. You just have to. You can't even assume it's right. You have to say that's not right. I need to see how they came up with that and have a super critical eye to everything. So when they come out and say, oh, yeah, the Chargers uh, economic benefit, $150 million. No, it doesn't. No, they don't. So John Vrooman is a Vanderbilt econ professor, and he specializes on sports stuff. And he says, when you look at impact numbers, economic impact numbers from tourism groups and chamber of commerces, he says the rule of thumb is to move the decimal point one place to the left. <laughs> so $150 million economic impact, eh, it's more like $15 million. <laughs> That's a pretty big difference. So why, why, why is it so big? Or I should say, why not why is the difference so big? Why is the actual economic impact of something like a sports team so small? Two economic points I want to bring up here quickly. One, when, so money's fungible. When someone spends $100 at a, for a game, for to go to a Chargers game, ticket, you know, hot dog, parking, whatever, that person doesn't spend $100 at the movies. So when the Chargers leave, that person who would spend $100 at the game they're not going to burn $100. They're going to go to the movies. They're going to go out to eat. They're going to do something else with $100. So money just moves and is spent on something different. So that's why, you know, the impact of the charges, meh, it's something, but it's not huge either way. It's not huge when they're here. It's not huge when they leave. It's not a huge hit when they leave. So that's point number one. Point number two. This is a classic case of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. The classic example that we always give is a politician wants to build a bridge. So they tax everybody $10 to build the bridge. And everyone sees this giant bridge being built and they see hundreds of construction workers being employed. So the politician gets all this credit for creating jobs. Concentrated benefit. There's the bridge. There are the people working on it. But what people don't see is the negative impact of taking $10 from everyone in town. You take 10 bucks from everyone, well, that's fewer. Let's just go with movie tickets purchased. So because people have $10, everyone has $10 less, fewer people go to the movies, 10 different movie theaters have to lay someone off. No one sees those 10 people laid off from movie theaters. Dispersed costs. No one sees it. No politician gets any blame for it. So because you have such obvious concentrated benefits and no one pays attention to the dispersed cost, people keep making bad economic decisions over and over again. And politicians keep getting held up and lifted up as people who are creating jobs. Because all we see are the jobs they created. We don't see the jobs that were lost because of whatever policy they enacted. So the Chargers and all these sports teams and, and many other things like it are very seen concentrated benefits. But now that the charges leave, 
those benefits will still be here. They'll just be more spread out citywide to all the other things that you can do in San Diego or whatever city uh, you live in. My point is, if your NFL team leaves, don't worry. <laughs> there's, there's, there's more to life and there's more to your city. It's better to have an NFL team than not, but it's just not a good business decision to hand over a billion dollars in taxpayer money to keep them. It's not a good business decision for the economy and for the taxpayer. It's just not. So don't do it. And if your team gets up and leaves, it's fine. You'll be okay. And so will San Diego. We have SeaWorld. Come visit. one 888 900 Slater Radio on Twitter. Uh, I want to come back with... Story I read, I, I knew half of this story a couple of years ago, but I never heard the second half of it. It's a nice inspirational story um, that I think you'll be able to apply to your life. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Sorry, because I just want to play this quick clip here of Brad Meltzer. I talked to him on my local show the other day. He is uh, an author of, of many books, but he has a children's book series, which I could not recommend more. Everyone has to buy them. Uh, I promise you they're spectacular. If there was one work of art today that I could cross off the author's name and put my own on it, it would be these books. It's the I Am series. Um, let's see if I can pull it up here. Uh, there's, I am George Washington. Sorry, I should have had it here. One more click here. Come on, internet, don't let me down. Uh, I'm George Washington. I am Jane Goodall. I am Jackie Robinson. I am Helen Keller. I am MLK Jr. I am Lucille Ball. I am Amelia Earhart. They're awesome, 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 awesome. Buy them all. It's an amazing, amazing collection of kids' books. So he has a new one. I am Jim Henson. And I just want to play a quick clip from, um, from him talking about I am Jim Henson, 1274. Um, you know, what I love most about him is Jim Henson and Kermit the Frog, you know, created the Muppets. We all know that part. But that's kind of nostalgia. That's why we love the Muppets. But what we really, just because something's old doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> so I was kind of nervous that if I went back and looked at it, like, is he going to be good? Does that mean, or is it just like, that's just nostalgia. But when you go back to his life, the best part of it is he's amazing. And one of his stories that I love, especially for this kid's book, for, you know, to teach my kids what it means to be a hero, is Jim Henson wanted his first job to be in television. And he goes to all these TV stations for jobs. They all reject him. And it's not he, – he finally sees an ad that says they're looking for a puppeteer. And he goes into the local library. He takes out a book on puppetry. He goes back to the same TV station that rejected him, and he says, I'm a puppeteer. Will you hire me? <laughs> And I want my kids to know that if someone puts an obstacle in your way, you go around it. And that's the lesson of I Am Jim Henson. It teaches you right from the start that it's, what makes him great is hard work right from there. 
Love it. Uh, one more, also on my local show, every Monday we, we have a biographer segment and we have a different biographer on and we ask the same question. What are three characteristics that define the person in your biography? Um, what are three characteristics of them that uh, define them that we can apply to our lives? And then a little story with each characteristic. And we've done it for over a year now and created a nice little anthology of, of people who have really done incredible things in America. Some you know and some you've never heard of, but should. And the one word that gets thrown the most is perseverance. It's the most common characteristic of successful people, people who don't give up, no matter what. I want to share a quick story here. i got three minutes. Um, I've heard the second half of this story before, but I've, I never heard the part that comes before that. So this is the story of two writers. They met in college, fell in love. He taught English at a private school. Didn't make a lot of money. He also had to work uh, summers at a laundromat and a janitor and a gas station attendant to make money, to make ends meet. She worked second shift at a Dunkin' Donuts and they had a toddler as well. They lived in a double wide trailer, barely, barely making ends meet. And he would write whenever he had a minute to do it, which wasn't very often. And he would send stuff out and he'd get a little check every once in a while, just enough to buy groceries here and there. I want to jump forward to the part of the story I've heard before, and then I'll come back to the part I haven't. He started to write a story out and he got three pages in and he got so frustrated he couldn't do anymore. He, he took the pages, crumpled them up in anger and threw them in the trash can. The next day, his wife went to empty the trash cans, read what he wrote, like found the crumpled up papers, opened, up, opened them up and read them. And when he came back from work that, that day, they were sitting on the kitchen counter. And she said, you've got something here. She pushed him to grit through it, helped him mold the characters. And nine months later, Stephen King had his first hit with Carrie. It was published for a $2,500 advance. They were freaking out. It only sold 13,000 copies in hardback. But a couple months later, the paperback, the people bought it, the company bought it in paperback. And they gave him a $200,000 check. And that was the beginning of Stephen King. Wouldn't have happened if his wife didn't pick the papers out of the garbage and encourage him to continue. Now, I've heard that part of the story before, and that's a great story. But there's a more interesting part to it. One that, uh, well, you decide. The school, this was a couple months before. The school he worked at offered him a job to advise the debate team, right? Become an advisor for the debate team. Would have paid another $300 a year. They needed the money. He took the job. His wife said, well, that's great, honey, but when will you ever get a chance to write? He said, well, I won't anymore. And she said, well, then you can't take it. He was stunned. She, he thought she'd be super happy because he was bringing in more money. But she wasn't because she wanted him to continue his passion over the immediate money. Imagine if she didn't encourage that. Imagine if Stephen King just took the money, took the job and never had any more time to write. Then none of then Carrie wouldn't have gotten written and then all the other books wouldn't, and all the other things that he's done wouldn't have happened either. Isn't that amazing? 
every success at some point had so many times to quit. Anyone who's successful had so many times they could have quit, but by definition, they, they didn't and they kept going. Add that to your uh, list of motivational stories to get you through if you're in one of those ruts right now. Keep going. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. Um, let's wrap up the show with this, I suppose. So we talked earlier in the last hour about guy writing in the week about how conservatives are evil, saying that conservatives don't care about the suffering of others. It's just, uh, it's just an ignorant thing to say. Um, I don't believe that progressives don't care about the suffering of others. I think progressives and conservatives all care about, people all care about the suffering of others. We just have different solutions to the suffering. That's all. Um, but I want to talk about conservatism in general, and, and maybe this can help if there's anyone listening who does think conservatives are evil, which is what he said. He said conservatives are evil because we don't care about the suffering of others. <clears throat> We're not evil. Please give me a break. Let me try to add a little bit to help you understand, perhaps. There was a, a Dutch painter, I think the 16th century. His name is uh, Her- Hieronymus Bosch. I have no idea how to spell that. <laughs> Heron- it's like there's a Y in there somewhere. Hieronymus Bosch. And there, he's obviously got a ton of paintings, but there's one I want to describe to you. It's called The Garden of Earthly Delights. It's in three panels. Uh, the panel on the left, you have, um, and they're crazy paintings. They're all got kind of weird, but uh, the panel, there's three panels. The one on the left, God is uh, presenting uh, Eve to Adam and everything is beautiful and exotic and green and there's animals and plants and all that. The center panel, which is the biggest, everyone's doing whatever they want and it's a bit loco it's fantastical like all the everything's just weird and out of proportion and and crazy um it's like the painting was written or drawn in the 1500s but it's it's still today like futuristic in a weird way and everyone's doing their own thing according to their own moral compass whatever they want and then you got the, the right panel the third panel and you guessed it it's hell it's a hellish scene uh, where the humans have succumbed to their temptations and there's a city in the background that's burning uh, and you get the idea, right? So you, you see what he's doing here. It's the garden of earthly delights. I believe that this painting demonstrates a truth of human existence. It's a truth of life that order decays. It's called entropy. The second law of thermodynamics says that in an isolated system, so without an external force applied, things decay. Things, everything entropies, entropies over time. There's only four laws of thermodynamics, and that's the second. Things decay. And it's obvious. When you buy something, let's say you buy a toaster, it doesn't get nicer over time. Right? The toaster doesn't get better. It gets older. It rusts. It falls apart. Your body gets older. Decays. It droops. <laughs> Things stop working properly. You get the idea. Your eyes don't work as well, right? Because your eyes are entropying. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Now your law is entropy until or unless maybe you get LASIK. That would be an external force. But without an external force, things get older, things fall apart. I think the same is true with society. 
without an external force, which is God, if we just go aimlessly, we will entropy. We will decay. That's why I'm a conservative. Because I believe without order, without religious truths, without traditions, without virtue and purity and respect, things fall apart. Science. <laughs> and it's happened countless times, societies in human history. It's funny, we have such a, a small perception of human history. We think, so when we think history in America, we think uh, well, our history. And then maybe we'll go back to ancient Rome, right? So, so like our, our perception of history is ancient Rome, ancient Greece, and then us. <laughs> like, that, like that's kind of it. But there's history, I mean, further back than the Romans and the, and the, uh, the Greeks and all over the world. There's societies all over the world. There's societies people have never heard of. Ancient societies that are that are long gone that people have never even heard of. Um, that I spent way too long studying in college. But they're 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 they all really about. It's the same story. It's the same entropy. It's all the same type of decay. We quoted uh, Matt Chandler from the Village Church. I think last week we were talking about men, right? And he said, where men fill the purpose and design of men, as the Bible has outlined it, humanity flourishes. And where men refuse to step into the space that men are called to fill, the world burns. He says, you want to look at it economically, you want to look at it sociologically, just do a secular study of what happens when men refuse to be husbands and refuse to be fathers. Look at what happens. Everything breaks. So in, in that quote there, the men are, the in the family, are the outside force, right? Like, like men come in, so you, so you have you have the you have the closed system, which is just people, family, entropying, decaying, and then we men or everyone right, but women too obviously, but in this case men have to come in and and build it back up constantly all the time. Things are always falling, things are always failing, things are always breaking. People are always fighting. You got to come in as a dad and bring things together, build things back up. Otherwise, things will decay. If you don't do anything, they decay. That's the natural force. Makes sense, right? Everyone knows this. It's a truth. Everyone knows it. I also believe that the truth is already known. I don't think we have to make anything else up. There's no new truth. There's always new ways to apply truth, but the truth's already here. Proverbs 4 pretty much says all on this point, but like it's, it's all there. The truth is already known. Just got to apply it. So that's why I'm a conservative. I'm not looking for new truth. Here it is. I'm looking for new ways to apply it to every aspect of life, of course. But the truth is here. And we need that truth. Otherwise, society decays. Does that make me evil? Of course not. I'll end on this just because I got a minute. Uh, Rudyard Kipling is uh, wrote my favorite poem. I've talked about it before in passing. It's called Gods of the Copybook Headings. It's awesome. Copybook headings means truth, which is another word for truth. So gods of truth. And it's a poem about how in all of human history, for all of human history, truth has been known, but people think they know better and they stray from it 
and they do their own thing. And then the truth smacks them again in the face. And then people think they found a new truth and they, and they go follow that and they stray. And then the, the real truth smacks them in the face again. And we just do it over and over and over again. And that's what history is. That, that's human history. That's the story of human history. And I think it ends, I think the poem ends with, um, as it will be in the future, it was at the birth of man, right? So it's been like that forever. There are only four things certain since social progress began, that the dog returns to his vomit and the sow returns to her mire and the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wabbling back to the fire, right? I mean, the burnt fool's bandaged finger. So you already burned yourself on the fire, but you still, you go wabbling back to the fire, right? Dog returns to his vomit in the Bible, right? You just, we keep doing the same mistakes over and over. So that's why I have conservative values. I'm sick of going back to the fire. I'm sick. I have a bandaged finger because I already burned my, I'm not going to go back to the fire again. I'm sick of trying to come up with more new truth. No, stop. And people are saying, still maybe people are thinking like, well, Slater, you got to progress. Yeah, yeah. But progression is not the discovery of new truth. It's the application of old truth to new things. Civil rights, for instance, the perfect example. Civil rights was not a discovery of a new truth. It was the application of the truth in the Declaration of Independence applied to all people. And that's how Martin Luther King Jr. framed the entire civil rights movement, which is why it worked. So I'll listen to anyone who wants to apply old truth to new things and new ways and better ways. But if you think you discovered a new truth, I'll listen politely, but uh, you're wrong. one 888 Slider Radio on Twitter. Mike Slider Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Slider Crusaders. Thanks for being here. Excited for uh, for this next week of news. It's going to be crazy with the inauguration. Uh, look forward to it. I don't even know what. We we could have gone. We were going to go. And I was like, I don't do I People and the thing and that. I don't, I don't know. I, I, but I look forward to watching it. Um, I don't. I have no idea what to expect. I have no idea at all what to expect. So I'm just going to sit back and uh, and take it in. I guess it'll be a nice microcosm of this entire last election. What the heck is this inauguration going to be? Paul Anka's singing and stuff like what? The Rockets? How are the Rockets going to? The Mormon Tabernacle Choir? That'd be awesome. Uh, but like where and how and who and just be bizarre. So I look forward to it and uh, it'll be fun because our show on Saturday will be right after the inauguration, which is on Friday. Um, let me wrap up the show with this. I don't know if we ever shared this story. Uh, Nicholas Kristoff in the New York Times wrote an editorial. Uh, it's called The Confession of Liberal Intolerance. And talked about a uh, a gentleman, George Yancey, who is a social a sociologist who is black and evangelical. Mm. He said, outside of academia, I faced more problems being black. But inside academia, I faced more problems as a Christian. It's not even close, he says. He said he... Uh, <clears throat> Nicholas Kristof, so he told that story of George Yancey about how uh, inside the academia world, being a Christian was, you know, he's an idiot. 
And he says, um, I've been thinking about this because on Facebook, I recently wondered aloud whether universities stigmatize conservatives and undermined intellectual diversity. Obviously, the scornful reaction from my fellow liberals proved the point. Someone wrote, much of the conservative worldview consists of ideas that are known empirically to be false. Someone wrote, the truth has a liberal slant. Someone said, why stop there? How about we make faculties more diverse by hiring idiots? And then he went and quoted a study about how 2% of English professors are Republicans and 18% are Marxists. So it's, <laughs> have you ever met a Marxist, like a real life Marxist? 18% of English professors are Marxist. It's easier to find a Marxist than a, than a Republican. Amazing. Um, he says the biggest bias on college campuses is against Christians. He says the same arguments I hear people make about evangelicals sound so familiar to the ways people often describe folks of color. That is politically unsophisticated, lacking education, anger, angry, bitter, emotional, poor. So anyway, good on, good on Mr. Kristoff for writing about this. Um, I thought, so this is in the Times a while ago, and I thought it would be an influential piece, right? Or, you know, it caused people to be a little introspection. Right? The first comment to the article, quote, it's not that conservatives aren't bright. It's that, for the most part, they are narrow-minded and are sure they have the right answers. Most that I know or know of don't have much exposure to the world outside their ideological strata and not much interested in such exposure. It's part of being a conservative. Who would want such narrow thinkers and true believers to be part of academia? So here's someone saying conservatives shouldn't be welcomed in universities because they're narrow-minded and ignorant which is a pretty narrow-minded and ignorant reason to keep anyone out of academia, right? But the irony is lost on them, no doubt. I bring it up just as a to follow up on what I was talking about before because I believe the truth is known. I believe the truth already exists. There's no new truth. We're never going to discover a new truth. It's all there. Someone will look at that, I guess, and say I'm narrow-minded? No, I don't, I don't, I don't see that. I, I mean, you can make up stuff all day long, but... I think to look at the course of human history and see how it always goes and to realize those truths and apply them to today and making the right decisions, I don't think that's narrow-minded at all. I think it's pretty narrow-minded to think that you can discover a new truth, to be honest. But again, the irony is uh, <clears throat> is lost. Well, no, we shouldn't let conservatives in uh, universities. They're just so uh, so narrow-minded. Pretty ignorant, pretty narrow-minded people. They don't, uh, they don't, they don't like uh, listening to diverse opinions. <laughs> like, oh, okay, I guess. Uh, Slater, Slater Radio. So anyway, remember one of our uh, one of our themes of the year. The second one was I know so little. Remember, second one is I know so little. Always question our perspectives. Always question these truths. Glenn always quotes that Thomas Jefferson line about uh, questioning God. Right? He'd rather have someone who who honest question rather than blind faith. God would rather, rather be praised by someone who questions honestly than blind faith, right? So always question, always, always, always. And always have the humility to think, you know, maybe I'm not quite right on this one. But that's different than trying to discover a new truth. That's impossible. It's always trying to find the truth. Slater Radio on Twitter. Let's hang out this week on Facebook. You can search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. And uh, we'll see you next week for... Uh, the show right after the inauguration. 
What a crazy... I don't... I don't see... I, it, it, I don't see how this week can be any crazier than last. But I, I think we have four years of this. Four years of every... We can't have, we can't have every week outdo the last, can we? Is that possible? I don't want that. I don't... I can't, I can't take that. But it'll be fun. I'm glad you're here. Slater Radio on Facebook. We'll see you next Saturday. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.